0: and failed in the past. In this 60 Minute Masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today's episode is about a question that I get asked about all the time and is coming up more and more in the news. The question is, is moderate drinking good for your health? My guest today is Dr. Stina Mayer. She's an associate professor and vice chair for research in the Department of Behavioral and Community Health Services at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health. Her research seeks to understand the structural and contextual influences on substance use related problems with the goal to reduce these problems in the community. And I actually reached out to uh, Stina, to Dr. Mayer, after I read an article she had written in Salon where the title was, alcohol's health benefits are hard to prove, but the harms are easy to document. Alcohol is part of American life, but its health risks are underplayed. She wrote maybe underplayed, but after being in this world for seven years since I quit drinking and I've learned so much, they are absolutely underplayed all the time for a million reasons. So, Stina, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to this conversation today.
0: Yeah. And I reached out to you because I have been wanting to have this conversation for a very long time. Um, But I wanted to find the right guest. Um, And after reading your article and all the news coming out, I thought it was the perfect time to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, I think um, sort of, as I said before, a lot of these are not new health effects that we're learning about, but I think that there's sort of a groundswell around having these conversations, particularly around moderate alcohol use. So I'm happy to see it gaining a lot more recognition and a lot more people talking about this.
0: Yes. I mean, the stat that blew my mind, because I used to, unless I was trying to moderate or take a break, I used to drink about a bottle of wine a night. And the stat that blew my mind was that for women, drinking a bottle of wine is the cancer equivalent risk of smoking ten cigarettes.
1: That's exactly right. They say about, you know, if you have about one drink a day is equivalent to one to two cigarettes a day. So that math checks out.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's incredible because I would never smoke 10 cigarettes a day, like in my mind, that would be awful for my lungs and my body and my cancer risk. And yet alcohol is so glamorized. And we think that a glass or two of wine a day is actually good for us, you know, more healthy than someone who doesn't drink at all. And it is just factually completely untrue.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, there's a lot of media when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, sort of about, um, you know, the French and they drink a glass of wine a day and they're so much healthier than everyone else, right? It was really in the popular culture that it was protective, in particular, for heart health. Um, And, you know, the evidence does not back that up.
0: Yeah, I remember vividly, and it's in popular culture now, I think it was 60 Minutes did a big story on the French paradox, and the idea that drinking a glass of wine a day really makes them much more healthy, ignoring how much they walk and their diet and, you know, the way that we consume food and what's inside our food. Um, but it really took off and took hold.
1: Yeah, there's something called um, the sick quitter effect that I think is really important when we think about why it appears that people who have one or two drinks a day are, quote unquote, healthier than others. And it um, refers sort of exactly to what you were talking about. So um, if you think about who does not drink at all, there are people who have deliberately chosen to not consume alcohol. Maybe they never drank alcohol. But there are also a not sort of, there's a pretty large group of folks who at some point in their life, consumed alcohol and maybe stop drinking for health reasons, other health complications. Maybe they have cancer, um, other chronic conditions, or they just feel healthier when they don't drink. And so what that means is that those who fully abstain from alcohol at baseline for reasons completely unrelated to their drinking are potentially slightly less healthy, right? They've made choices to improve their health by stopping consuming alcohol. So that sort of It had this false impression that those who drink one or two drinks a day are healthier. And that's just really for reasons completely unrelated to alcohol consumption.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yet, once these studies come out, however flawed, they're pushed quite a bit, obviously, by the alcohol industry, but also just by the media and popular culture and all of us, because we want to believe that our favorite drug is healthy. You know, I even went to an eye doctor and was talking to him about the fact that like there were some blood vessels in my eye that were kind of red and asked him about it. And I was like, and by the way, I don't drink as in this red effect in my eye is completely unrelated to bloodshot eyes. And, you know, he was 65 years old and was like, well, maybe that's the problem. And I was like, (laughs) I didn't say anything for like 10 minutes. And I was like, sitting there like, do I say anything? Do I say anything? And finally, I was like, can we go back to what you said, XYZ? And he was like, well, some drinking is healthy for you. And he got... A lecture from me, like I am that girl now, that was like that is factually untrue. And as a medical professional, you should know that, you know. Like so. Anyway, I may not go back because he may not want to see me. But I, it bothers me when people who should know better perpetuate that idea.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's so common, right? Seventy percent or so of American adults consume at least one drink per month, right? So the majority of people do. And the majority of people, you know, have not seen necessarily the the bigger, broader, larger sort of acute um, impacts of their alcohol use. So they feel uncomfortable, I think, when you sort of point out to them that moderate alcohol consumption does have these other health effects attached to it. And, you know, in my field, I'm an epidemiologist, I'm in public health. And it's one of the things we struggle with the most. And actually, it's something the alcohol industry has sort of tried to continue to perpetuate. And it's this idea of sort of individual risk versus population risk. So in public health, we're trying to sort of, what we call shift the curve, right? So the idea is that if every single person even just had two fewer drinks a month, right? If everyone just slightly moderated or reduced their alcohol use, we would see a huge impact, right? Um, but the alcohol industry likes to sort of point out that, oh, these are only individual behavioral choices, you're choosing to do this, you're healthy, so you don't need to worry about these larger risks related to alcohol consumption. And they make it fully and solely about individual responsibility, individual blame. If you can't handle your alcohol, that is your fault, right? It becomes this individual level thing where really, you know, it's cultural, it's structural. We can think about sort of at the population level of everyone in the United States, the impact of alcohol in the industry, but that doesn't serve their best interests. Right. So um, we tend not to think of it that way.
0: Finally, and I'm hoping articles like you write studies that you work on things in popular culture, this podcast are starting to change the conversation from like, struggling with alcohol is a they problem, meaning these people over here, to it's a we problem. And I think that it, during the pandemic, when drinking, binge drinking among women in the US actually spiked 40% and drinking with uh, parents of children under the age of five went up by 323%. I'll link to all the studies. Not only that, I saw in one study that the increase in death rates from alcohol related uh, causes went from during the pandemic an average increase annually of 2 to 5% to like 25%. That was the jump. And that's so at least in the media people are starting to not be like oh my god you're a problem drinker you're an alcoholic you can't handle it. All you need to do is drink responsibly to wow we have a public health issue here and it's actually the substance that is sort of universally a problem to anyone versus you are somehow uniquely damaged and you've lost your privileges.
1: Yeah, you know, alcohol, there was a, a study that came out maybe 20 years ago that pointed out that alcohol is in the top five, what we call actual causes of death, right? Those are modifiable behavioral choices that we make. Tobacco, of course, leads the way, but alcohol is not far behind it. And during the pandemic, I they there are many different ways of sort of categorizing what is an alcohol attributable death versus not, um, because it does contribute to so many different chronic health conditions. So um, one way we can sort of calculate that is to say, well, you know, 20% of risk from breast cancer, for example, I don't know the exact number, is attributable to alcohol. And so you can sort of, you know, you partition out all the deaths. And I think it was 120,000 alcohol attributable deaths um, during the first year of the pandemic, which had gone up by you know, 20,000, 30,000. It was a pretty big jump. And they say that there are maybe 19,000 cancer deaths directly attributable to alcohol every year in the United States, and 75,000 cases. And that's you know not an insubstantial number. And I don't think that when it comes to cancer, people typically link alcohol use, or that that connection is not as clear for many people.
0: Yeah. I think that's completely true. And I truly hope, I mean, honestly, like a lot of my friends drink, my husband drinks. I was a huge drinker. Like I am not judging anyone. Um, And I feel like if more people knew the impact, we clearly with cigarettes now, I think people choose to smoke. That is perfectly fine. But nobody is like, oh, yeah, that's actually good for your heart everybody is like, okay, you could choose to smoke, but you should, you know, you should really not smoke because I care about you and I want you to be around. Yep. Yeah,
1: you're totally right. I think that um, in particular tobacco, sort of that took hold in some ways because of secondhand smoke, environmental smoke, there was this obvious link where you could say you are harming me directly every time you smoke a cigarette. And of course, you know, if you're harming your own health, you are harming others. And there are harms to others, as we all know, that sort of accumulate around alcohol consumption. Think about child abuse and neglect and partner violence and, you know, um, driving after drinking. I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of things there, right? But it's a little bit less like obvious and direct. And um, even in the the alcohol research world, we always sort of say that alcohol researchers are like, Thirty to forty years behind tobacco researchers in terms of our partnerships with the alcohol industry and how we've tried to separate ourselves and the influence that the alcohol industry has on alcohol researchers, even federally funded alcohol researchers um it that's another thing that we have not been paying close enough attention, and just recently, I feel like we're starting to have a groundswell within the alcohol research community to understand the importance of trying to separate industry influence from the work that we do
0: yeah i I completely agree. And I think, you know, like many other things, there has actually been, in terms of funding, it has been squashed funding for a lot of alcohol research. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is 2 times more effective dot com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code hello and get ready to sleep well.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have NIAAA, right, which is um, the National Institute for Alcohol, currently it's called for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. They're probably going to change the name based on our, you know, our our redefining of language right around we don't really say alcohol abuse anymore. Um, But That's what it's called. And so it's funded by the National Institutes of Health. It's a separate research organization from NIDA, which is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So alcohol has its own little, you know, it's separated out from drug abuse. It has its own agency. And of course, the budget is much smaller, even though alcohol in many ways, I mean, you know, there's, it's debatable is it opioids or alcohol that has the biggest public health impact in this country, but it's you know, they're neck and neck, right? Um, and it depends on sort of what kinds of harms you're looking at. And it's, you know, it's a socially acceptable substance, right? More than any other one. And so, yeah, um,
0: definitely. I mean, even though I live in Washington state, I know many, many states have made marijuana legal. I drive around my town, I, I live just outside Seattle, and probably past 10 marijuana shops in my general neighborhood, at the same time, I don't know any parents who sit around at dinner or after dinner and smoke marijuana in front of their children. Do you know what I mean? Like, that is just not a thing that anyone I know is comfortable doing. Now, that may be different for younger people. But I mean, as a 47-year-old, I certainly know people who smoke pot nobody does it around their children where their children can see it. And that's just an indication of like, all right, this may be legal, but I don't necessarily want to influence my kids or I don't want them to do this. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And, but it will be interesting for me to sort of see over the next 20, 10 to 20 years, what happens with the cannabis industry, right? Does it fully integrate and become sort of akin to and aligned with alcohol or does it sort of stay in this middle gray zone in some sort of way? I think it will be generational as you say that, um, you know, high school students these days use cannabis just as much as alcohol, as much as they drink alcohol, right? So um, it's an interesting shift.
0: (laughs) Well, so let's, one of the things, one of the reasons I was, I, Um, I'm going to put this in the links as well. But the Huberman lab podcast, which is a huge podcast and has a huge following. It's science based, um, not about alcohol in particular, definitely not about sobriety, but did an episode on alcohol and its impact on your mind, your body, your health. What I think is really interesting about that two things. One, He did not, you know, in terms of the that's a they problem, he focused on what was at the time and is probably still, it's just starting to shift the quote unquote recommended guidelines for drinking, which is like one drink, no more than one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men, no more than seven drinks a week for women or 14 drinks a week for men, which I know if you are a drinker my friends are drinkers. Many, many, many people drink at that level. That is not heavy, quote unquote, heavy drinking in society. And looked at the health effects of what that level of drinking, the recommended level does to your mind, body and health. And I want to talk about that. And what was interesting was in the podcast, Huberman was literally apologizing for sharing this information. Like, I am sorry to have to tell you this. I know it's not what you were going to want to hear X, Y, Z, like apologizing to his audience for illuminating them of this fact. Like I just thought, I mean, he is a medical professor, researcher, has a huge platform, has talked about all the subjects. I haven't heard him apologizing for telling people about medical facts ever before in my life. (laughs)
1: That's interesting. Yeah. And in fact, those numbers that you cite you know, seven for women and 14 for men, um, Canada actually just recently this year, they revised their guidelines and now they're saying no more than two drinks per week for everyone. But that's the that's the safe level that anything over two drinks per week is associated with increased harms. Um, So that's a that's an even more drastic change, of course. Uh, The U.S. revises their guidelines every I don't a decade or so. So I'll be interested to see the next time this comes around, um, you know, if the United States follows in the footsteps of Canada and other countries and lowers that, those levels even more.
0: Yes. And not only did Canada do that, but Ireland also did that recently. And um, I mean, very real labels like required on individual packaging of alcohol products think bottle of wine, can of beer, very specifically and not tiny um, warnings on alcohol. And what's interesting is that the Italian winemakers are super upset about it. I'll link to the articles, but are like, oh my God, if this health information about alcohol gets out, it is going to damage consumption of our product. And they were like, why don't you label spirits, and maybe beer, but definitely not wine. And I mean, Ireland, also, I believe I'll have to check, but I'm, I'm 80% sure was the first country to outlaw indoor smoking in bars and restaurants. And at the time, there was huge pushback that this people will rebel. This is awful. I mean, you think of drinking in Ireland and smoking as like part of the culture. And yet there wasn't a huge pushback. And now it's adopted in so much of the world that there's no indoor smoking.
1: Yeah, norms can really shift quickly. I mean, I remember going to bars in college and graduate school and you, you know, you take the shower the day after and that tobacco smoke smell would just come out of your hair, you know, and now if I walked into any sort of bar or restaurant or any place like that, and there was indoor tobacco smoke, I would be shocked, right? I mean, it's that norm has completely shifted over a pretty, yeah.
0: I also remember I was a kid, my parents are foreign service, we lived overseas, we would fly to Brazil from the US, which is a very long flight. And there was a smoking section of- I remember that- (laughs) (laughs) and non smoking, like in the front of economy. So I'm a eight year old kid, and the person behind me is just smoking packs of packs of cigarettes in this tiny, closed air container. And now I mean, I cannot imagine, I think if people did that, people would turn around and be like, what the actual, you know, thing are you doing?
1: Yeah. Although when vaping first took hold, I remember being on a plane and seeing someone vape on a plane because, you know, the restrictions weren't fully in place and no one knew to tell them not to. Um, luckily, that doesn't happen anymore.
0: We talked about it briefly, like alcohol's is linked to cancer, health issues, at diff- what's going on in yeah. Canada. Can you share, like, exactly, if someone's listening to this, they're part of the 70% of the population that doesn't understand the risk of alcohol to your mind and body. Can you
1: share what what that is? Sure. So, um, taking like one step backwards first to sort of situate why Canada made that change and sort of the evidence that they were using, that was really linked to that cancer link that I was talking about. So, the idea here is that we know there's a dose-response relationship between the amount of alcohol that you consume and your risk for many cancers, as I said, including breast cancer. So, with breast cancer, I believe that it is Um, Each additional drink per day that you consume um, increases your risk for breast cancer by 10%. So that's not insignificant, right? And that you think about how much people are trying to modify lifestyles to reduce risk for cancer. And this seems like a pretty obvious link. So. The reason that sort of historically, those levels were set at one drink per day for women and two drinks per day for men, that was really around cardiovascular disease risk. So we used to talk about what we call the J-shaped curve. So the idea here is that your risk for a lot of cardiovascular health outcomes, slightly elevated with no alcohol consumption and its very lowest with one drink per day. And then you sort of went up rapidly that J-shape, right? And for the reasons that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast around the sick quitter effect, there are all sorts of what we call confounding factors, right? They really sort of explain why you have that slight uptick with zero drinks per day. In fact, it went so far as NIAAA, the you know, National Health Institutes on Health Institute that studies alcohol research, funded a randomized controlled trial, and this was only five or six years ago, that they were going to randomize people to have one drink per day and zero drinks per day, those who are people who already drink, to compare their cardiovascular disease risk over the course of a year. They were trying to prove causally that drinking low amounts of alcohol, one drink a day, was associated with lower risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, and this goes to that why you can recommend one drink per day and the French drinker paradox. Well, that trial was halted after it had gone on for maybe only one month. And really it was because of this cancer risk, right? So this idea that we know that one drink per week, even is associated with an increased risk in cancer. There's no safe level of alcohol consumption when it comes to cancer. So even if there were this very slightly protective effect that really there's no solid evidence at this point that it exists with cardiovascular disease, because of your risk of other health complications, that's never, you know, that would never recommend someone have one drink a day for their health. So sort of the, the where to start with, what are the risks? I think it's pretty safe. As you said, I sort of moderated it in the article that I wrote because they want you to, you know, not come all the way out right? and say it completely. But like, you know, the safe, the safest level of alcohol consumption is none. Mm-hmm. And many of these things are dose responsive, right? So if you do have one drink a day, that is better for your health than five drinks a day, six drinks a day. I am a full advocate of harm reduction approaches, right? So that if you are currently having four drinks a day and you reduce that to two or three, or maybe twice a week instead of five times a week, that's all beneficial for your health. That's better, right? So this idea, you know, I, I many of these things have this dose response relationship. So sort of to go back to what are the, you know, what are the 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 health problems that accrue around alcohol use? Um, as I said, cancer, right? Any level and. Any increased amount increases your risk for a whole range of cancers. Um, Cardiovascular disease, there's really no good evidence to summarize that one drink a day is better for your health. And once you get to two to three drinks per day, there's lots of evidence that it increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. So, you know, that's really well established. Mental health, of course, when we think about mental health, it's complicated and bidirectional because, of course, drinking more can cause you know, sort of exacerbation of mental health symptoms. But of course, having depression or, you know, other mental health um, disorders, of course, can increase your risk for alcohol consumption. So it, it it can be a cycle, right? That's bi-directional. But there are, you know, there are very clear links for, you know, almost any mental health outcome, right, associated with alcohol and other substance use. Um, a lot of the work that I do is around community violence, gun violence, intimate partner violence, child abuse and neglect we know all of these things are linked with alcohol use. I mean, once again, um, sexual violence is another big one. So I have a study right now looking at alcohol involved sexual violence on college campuses, and that's a huge problem. So, you know, this really spans from chronic diseases, our classic chronic diseases that many of them are linked to alcohol, to mental health, to other kinds of, you know, violence and behavioral health outcomes. So, um, it really spans. And none of the, you know, all of these are linked to alcohol consumption, even at low risk, uh, low levels, and the risk continues to increase the more that you drink.
0: Oh, my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head-on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah, absolutely. That was a long answer. (laughs) No, that is literally exactly what I wanted to know. And I think sometimes I'm so glad I have a son and daughter who I can't believe my son only is three years before he goes to college. But I'm so glad you're doing that study on alcohol and college campuses and all the risks associated with it. And I also think that the working mom who comes home and uh, opens a bottle of wine every night and has three glasses is like, of course, you shouldn't drink and drive. And of course, you shouldn't. Um, It is a big risk for my kids in college. And I don't want my daughters to drink. And I also don't want my sons to drink too much, you know, because of XYZ. And of course, It contributes to domestic violence and sexual abuse and other abuse, but that's not in my family, in my home. I would never, which is wonderful and amazing. And also, I think because of the way we've been marketed to, we think so as long as you're not pregnant and as long as you're not drinking and driving. And there's a very good reason we think this, right? That's what's on the bottles. That's what's on Mm -hmm. the bathroom door in the bars and restaurants. Then this is perfectly fine. This might actually be good for me, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And another um, large part of my research and something that I like to bring up, because I think it's really important, is what sort of we refer to as alcohol inequities. And what I mean here is that in particular, people who have minoritized racial ethnic identities, minoritized sexual gender identities, the number of problems that accrue at the same level of alcohol consumption look really different, right? So a lot of this, like, I can have three drinks a day. I'm fine. Um, You know, there are many people, um, I have a former mentor who'd always talk about sort of the, you know, the older, wealthy white man who's had a bottle of wine a day for his whole life and has really never experienced major consequences from that alcohol consumption, Right. If he goes out to a bar and gets too drunk, he can call a taxi. If he needs to take a day off of work, he can, right? So there may be these chronic health conditions, but really he can continue to live his life because he's buffered from some of these acute consequences. Um, When you have additional stressors in your life, um, you know, the whole range, right? When you have some of these minoritized identities, um, you know, your stress response, all of this looks very different. So, um, the risks that accrue around one to two drinks a day that you sometimes don't see in other groups. And here I'm not talking about cancer, right? The the physiologic response will be the same. But, um, you know, there are it 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 doesn't impact everyone the same way at the same level of quote unquote moderate consumption. And I think it's important to point that out to people who maybe don't have any of these minoritized identities and are unaware of this. Right. So just again, like thinking about it from a population level, sort of all of us together, whom is it impacting who is shouldering the burden of consequences? Um, And is it really fair for the rest of us to not understand that? Right? Um, I think I just I always like to point that out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about sort of the impact, it's not that it's not clearly, you know, disrupting sleep, causing issues with their body, causing issues with their brain, with their memory, you know, going, it's like, they can financially afford it. They can get through it. They can get help. I actually just yesterday um, talked with someone who runs an inpatient treatment center. Um, they contacted me. They're they're sort of interested in post care um, and resources for people in different areas. And I am I am a huge fan of inpatient if coaching group support, um, meetings, whatever it is, is not enough for you. And for very, very many people, they do need to be removed from, um, their current situation, removed from alcohol, have time to heal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when you're talking about resources, uh, I mean, a, this facility is top of the line. It is gorgeous. It is a former hotel resort. Um, you can have time to do meetings. Lots of CEOs go here and other people, right? I asked how much it cost $75,000 for 30 days. I mean, my God, I, I almost choked and I was like, I get it. That's incredible. I am glad that people who anyone who struggles with alcohol can get the care they need. But oh my God, you know what I mean?
1: Absolutely, yes. And I think, yeah, when you think about um, cost effectiveness as well, I always like to sort of put in a plug for prevention and primary prevention. And so this is, once again, where the public health perspective comes into things. So, you know, we have known for 40, 50 years, there are structural policy, community, state level things we can do to reduce the risk of developing an alcohol use disorder or this impact and, you know, getting to this place with this really expensive treatment where not everyone can access it and it exacerbates inequities, right? These are simple things like taxes, right? Increasing taxes on alcohol, um, decreasing the hours the bars are open, decreasing the number of bars and off-premise outlets that sell alcohol. Um, you know, they're pretty straightforward things. And you see, once again, shifting that curve, they make a really big difference. We saw this when the legal drinking age from 21 down to 18 and then to 21 again it had a big impact yeah. um in the uk they recently these their bars used to close much earlier it's a lot of them had rules about midnight or 1 a.m and they extended it to 2 a.m 3 a.m and all sorts of problems started popping up at the end of the night right like mm-hmm. violence related problems so um you know people may not like these because they like to their drink. alcohol to be convenient right the majority yeah. of us drink and so the majority of us want to have Cheap, easily uh, accessible alcohol. But these are all choices that we make that have a big impact. Um,
0: Yeah. I've talked to uh, doctors on this podcast before. And one of the things that I think definitely could help I mean, everything you mentioned, absolutely. But also, when you go into your primary care doctor, they do early screening for diabetes, Mm -hmm. they do early screening for high blood pressure um they literally are not taught to do any screening for alcohol use disorder in the mild, moderate or severe stages. I've talked to them that said on their rotations you have to specifically opt in to learn about addiction medicine. Um there was otherwise a total of 2 hours in medical treatment that touched on this and that's incredible to me when you talk about it being one of the, you know, one of the five most preventable causes of death, essentially.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, even when they do say, oh, they're screening um, sort of in, in parallel with this, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. But it, you know, it sort of became the norm in the last maybe ten to twenty years. That particularly when you would go to see your ob um, they're supposed to ask about you know partner violence. And I can't tell you how many times they've said to me, "Oh, well, like you're. I don't need to ask you this question, right? Like you and your husband are fine." Right. So even when they have screening questions, they you know, so they will take, you know, take a look at me as like a nice white lady. And and so even if they were supposed to ask about alcohol, my guess is most of them would say, I don't need to ask that question, right? Like she yeah. seems fine. They'll so make assumptions and they don't even do the basic screening when they're supposed to.
0: Yeah, definitely. And also, um, I mean, yes, I went to doctors for years and completely downplayed how much I drank. Absolutely. But there are ways to ask questions to uncover, especially in the early phases. Like, do you ever not remember stuff after you drink? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night? Um, you know, do you have increased anxiety? One of the first steps you can take is to remove alcohol and see what that does for your anxiety and sleep. You know, we are much more likely to be prescribed Ambien when you say you wake up in the middle of the night. And I'm talking from personal experience than to ask, okay, does that happen more when you're drinking before I prescribe you Ambien? I'd like you to stop drinking for a period of time because then I was drinking a bottle of wine a night and taking Ambien because that was, you know, my solution to the problem. Could be deadly to do that.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And yeah, you know, we have so many really short basic screeners for alcohol use disorder that includes, right? Like the audit, it has mild, moderate, severe. So it classifies those in those different ways. And almost everyone scores mild, right? Anyone who consumes any alcohol, um, <laughs> to see just like the beginning of social consequences, for example, right? Or the basic physiologic consequences like, oh, I had a hangover last month, right? I mean, you start to see it at pretty low levels of alcohol consumption. And in the research and in some, you know, clinical settings, these screeners have been used for decades and are very well established and really do a great job picking up on alcohol use disorder. So yes, they should be in primary care settings. I mean, I know that our primary care physicians are already greatly overburdened, but this seems to be a place that would really, um, you know, that basic screening, it's like a basic health screening seems If that were more widely implemented, I think that'd be very beneficial.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I know many people who have finally worked up the nerve to say something to their primary care doctors or to their therapists that they are concerned about their alcohol use or they're worried about it. And personally, and from women I've talked to, I mean, it is so brave and takes probably years to ever broach that with a medical provider, just because of the society we live in. And many times I've heard people say, you sound fine. That's not that much. Why don't you just cut out the last drink? Or, well, you're not an alcoholic, right? Which isn't even a medical diagnosis. It's not even in the DSM.
1: Yes. And I think it's, it's missed much more often in women than in men, right um you know it's not picked up on and i think a lot of that is for some of the reasons you're talking about here um sort of culturally and in our friend groups as we think about it right what's considered normal or you're still functioning you're fine right um i I found it very interesting that um from my larger sort of extended social network the friends of mine who are you know recovery and sober now, many of them are um, gay men. And a lot of that's because, you know, they drank more heavily in their 20s, some of my friends, but they really became in their friend group, I am thinking some friends in New York City, a norm around, you know, okay, many of us are sober and we don't drink and we're just fine. And once that sort of becomes accepted and the conversation is normal and they know the physicians they can go to and sort of where they can get that help, um, you know, it's like this tipping point. And once that sort of becomes more well established, I think it's easier for people to access the care they need. Um, I don't hear those kinds of conversations around my mom friends. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them drink and I that there's no norm like that.
0: Yeah. And most drinkers, to be fair, surround themselves with other drinkers. I mean, obviously, when you mention like, you know, X percent of the population has one drink a month, I was like, Oh my god, who are those people? I've never even heard of them. Like, I don't know anyone either. I mean, obviously I have a lot of sober friends now, but when I was drinking, I didn't know a single person who was sober and like no one I knew was having one drink <laughs> a month. Like that's insane to me. Um but I love the idea of the tipping point and I think I'm hoping One of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is because I have a lot of clients, I hear from a lot of women that, you know, the easiest way to tell someone you're not drinking is, okay, I always say, like, tell them you're doing a health challenge, tell them that, you know, you've decided to see how you feel with a period of time without alcohol. It impacts, you know, you sleep worse, you have more anxiety, you're more prone to depression, you have less energy. You're more content when you don't drink. And by the way, it's there's no question it is bad for your health. And a, even when women say that, they're told often by their friends and family, like, why? Everything in moderation. It's no big deal. I run a 10K and I drink, you know, which is totally fine. But like you said, in terms of the tipping point, I just want people to... Have the information out there. So, for the 70% of Americans who actually believe that moderate drinking is good for you and has no idea about the link to cancer, like just share this information, like no judgment, but be informed. Exactly.
1: And as I said earlier, you know, I am all about like a harm reduction approach. And I understand, you know, reducing is better and moderate drinking. I mean, I'm not a sober person, I don't drink that much, but I, you know, I drink alcohol on occasion and those are choices I make. I mean, we do all sorts of things, all of us that increase you know, health risks. But I agree, like where I really want this conversation to go is for people to be comfortable with whatever choice they make and to be aware of the choices that they're making. Right. That these are not health neutral decisions and choices that we are making. And for so long, I just feel like people didn't know. Um, and I just want the conversation to be more open. And that's also how I feel about shedding light on the alcohol industry and these things like it's never going to go away. It's a multi, multi hundreds of billions of dollars industry. But I want people to understand what is happening. Right. And I just think um, that's not the final solution to all these problems, but it's a really important part of the conversation. And so I'm so happy to be able to talk about these, these things.
0: Yeah. And when you think about all the things that people do, that are featured on like People Magazine every January to improve their health. I'm cutting out sugar. I'm cutting out gluten. I'm doing XYZ. I'm I'm very anti-diet culture, right? Everyone you know is like, I do intermittent fasting. And I'm like, yeah, you want to get healthier? Try cutting down on alcohol. Like that is awesome. You are cutting out gluten for like gut health issues or taking some supplement. But like, <laughs> Want to fix some gut issues? <laughs> like, by the way. So, I mean, but people really think, like, oh, red wine's good for my heart. Like, you know, it's just crazy. And one thing I wanted to mention we talk about Canada and Ireland, and yet I'm, I mean, I do see very minimal progress in the US, like, but in the spirit of no, you know, no shit, too little, too late. Um, in June 2020, was the first time that the American Cancer Society um, made a change to its guidelines on cancer reduction and prevention, saying it's best to cut alcohol out completely from one's diet. Finally, they said it's best not to drink alcohol. Previously, the frigging American Cancer Society in January 2020 recommended limiting alcohol consumption to one drink a day for women and no more than two drinks a day for men. And yet, they have known that alcohol use is one of the most preventable risk factors for cancer for years and years and years, right? Right.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and circling back to something you were saying about the, the red wine, which one of my pet peeves in alcohol research, even how alcohol is talked about, is people saying, well, red wine's better for you than beer, or, you know, the worst for you is hard liquor, right? Like, alcohol is alcohol <laughs> in a lot of ways, making these distinctions about, like, healthy alcohol versus not healthy alcohol, or, you know, fewer calories, so it's better for you, or, you know, it comes from a grape, so it's better for you. It, you know, I just have, like, little to no tolerance for
0: that. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. So I know you've done research or you have your personal perspective on this, but like, why the hell did it take till June 2020 for the freaking American Cancer Society to stop recommending an amount of alcohol that is directly associated with cancer risk? This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit BetterHelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's better help. H E L P.com slash someday. I, <laughs> good question. Um,
1: that's hard to answer, right? Of course. I, yeah. But I'm sure that part of it is this you know, how embedded alcohol is in our culture. And people worry about messaging that totally misses the mark, right? So like, I feel like they probably thought that, you know, we should talk about lower levels of alcohol consumption. And that matches what the FDA and the federal government and NIH, what everyone is telling us is in terms of healthy alcohol consumption, Um, And so much of it, right, when you talk about like low level exposure comes down to animal models, understanding, you know, it's hard to measure precise risks, right, with like low levels of exposure to anything. Um, So I'm sure part of it was just like, lower is better or it matches everything else. And no one wants to go on the limb and be that person because they're also there's going to be a lot of pushback. Right. Despite them
0: having medical evidence to the contrary. And being the American Cancer Society, you have one job, literally one job, which is to research and communicate risk. So anyway, that just, I'm happy, but it kind of pisses me off.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I guess it's good they're going in that direction. Um, But it just was so unknown as well, right? Like one of the reasons that I wrote this article this winter, I had written a similar one, maybe four or five years ago and sort of updated it. And one of the reasons was this article had just come out showing that it was something like only 30% of American adults knew that alcohol was associated with cancer. I mean, it was well under 50%, right? People just don't even know. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to just begin to talk about, like to point that out.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. The one thing about the American Cancer Society, I would say that there's still considering their mandate, uh, not scaring people too much, literally, in their guidelines, it says, quote, unquote, it's best not to drink alcohol. <laughs> <You> know, <right? laughs> um, they're not exactly like scaring the shit out of people. Although the CDC, in the frequently asked questions about alcohol, now states, um, drinking is associated with numerous health problems. I just want to read these off chronic diseases such as liver cirrhosis, damage to liver cells, pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas, various cancers, including liver, mouth, throat, larynx, the voice box, and esophagus, also breast cancer, of course, high blood pressure and psychological disorders. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, totally cool. Just good to know. (laughs) that, that that's, um, something to look at. I was actually in the airport. I was flying back from Africa. So we were in Europe, Germany, and I went through the duty free shop and, um, I was taking pictures because in duty free, they sell just tons of alcohol, right? Without the tax, it was just giant spirits and wine and beer. And they also sell cartons of cigarettes, So on the cartons of cigarettes, I should put this with this episode. There were just these like cigarettes cause cancer, like literally is associated with preventable death, like huge. So I was taking pictures of them. My husband's like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to get in trouble. I was like, why would I get in trouble for taking pictures of these warning labels? But just the fact that the amount of marketing dollars that go into glamorizing alcohol um, as required, it's it's just amazing. And I get it. I used to be in marketing. I actually strongly considered working for a wine company in their marketing department. There's one three miles from me before I quit drinking. Um, I mean, I get it. But like, also, I think just not having the information is problematic. Or when you do have the information, being told by the people in your life, like, yeah, that's actually not true. You know?
1: Yeah. And actually, part of the um, Canada is discussing right now adding warning labels similar to tobacco labels to alcohol products in Canada. And I could imagine that eventually in the You know, five to 10 year time horizon in this country eventually happening as well, right? Those tobacco warning labels were not there for a long time. But as I said, we're like 30 years behind, you know, alcohol and tobacco, they should sort of be in parallel, but they are not um, in terms of their interventions and where we are and what's happening and what the conversation is. Um, There are discussions about it, right? But it's still in the early phases. So we shall see where that goes.
0: (laughs) And I definitely, you know, kudos to Canada and Ireland. For leading the pack. I found the article I was looking for. So in Ireland, there was strong public support for the labeling regulations where 72% of consumers agreed that they have the right to be informed in advertising of public health risks from alcohol use, which feels so basic, but that's cool. The guy in charge of Italian wine, the industry expressed grave concerns. The president said that the proposals risk opening the door to alarmist and unjustified legislation capable of negatively influencing consumer choices, aka if you're told that alcohol causes cancer, you might choose not to buy it. And the article says, if the legislation negatively influences consumer choices, That will be based on hard evidence that is often swamped by glossy, expensive marketing campaigns.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes back to that um, initial point I was making about seeing um, alcohol use as a public health, as a population level problem, right? The alcohol industry would be very happy for us all to consider oh, everyone, you know, we can say some harms, but it's up to everyone's individual choice. And it's just an individual behavioral choice It has nothing to do with the context of our lives and how alcohol is glamorized and how easily available it is and how inexpensive it is, right? Um, And people, you know, they want us to keep seeing it that way. And someone with an alcohol use disorder, they want you to label that as a personal failing, right? That was a choice that you made and that is your fault and your problem and you alone can fix it, right? Like you can spend $75,000 on treatment, that is just, you know, just simply not the case. Um, You know, like, of course, everyone makes individual behavioral choices, but that's within the structures of our lives, the context of our country, the policies that we have, right? Sort of our social networks and our norms. And, um, you know, I just, it also breaks my heart that people see it as just individual responsibility and failing, right? This is a, a, a... we're all in this together, right? We live in contexts and cultures, and there are things that we can do collectively to yeah. reduce the impact of alcohol.
0: So, yeah. and it's addictive, right? That is the mm-hmm. other thing yep. that is not communicated. That if you go down the road of drinking more and drinking more often, the substance is working as designed. It mm-hmm. is the substance itself that causes you to go into withdrawal and then want to drink to get back to your normal. It's insidious. It's progressive. It's almost imperceptible at times. And And it's it's almost as addictive
1: as any other substance in the world, right?
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the addictive nature of alcohol, how it works?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not a a neuroscientist, right? So like, I'm not the person to go into all those details. But, um, you know, in terms of like, physiologic dependence, right? Like withdrawal from alcohol when you have alcohol dependence, right? Which is all the way sort of the far end of an alcohol use disorder. Um, You know, detox, it's worse than heroin, right? I mean, it's the absolute sort of like most physiologically addictive. So as I said, I don't study this, but my father actually was a neuropsychologist and he taught a class on drugs and behavior. And so he taught like exactly these things. So he would always tell me about different substances and like what to worry about and what would sort of be the consequences. Um, And so not only is it just like the dependence, you know, the physiologic dependence element of alcohol, it also is so it's ubiquitous, right? It is everywhere. So talk about like cues and triggers and staying sober. Um, It is much harder to do that with alcohol than almost any other substance as well, because it's everywhere. And probably most people, most of us know, Drink right yeah um, and don't see it as a big of a problem they don't understand those consequences, so you know at that end of the alcohol use disorder spectrum, it's really serious um and people yeah, I don't think that it's like fully acknowledged that that's the case it's not just the you know the unstably housed person you see on the street and you know like we have these 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 visions in our heads that are just completely false, you know don't match the reality,
0: so. yeah, and I think that's you know, really important to both share that moderate drinking does have risks, right? And the risk is not just I'm going to drink too much and drink and drive or I'm pregnant and will damage my unborn child. It has longer term risks that you're probably not aware of. But also when you get to the point of severe alcohol use disorder, Actually, just stopping is incredibly dangerous and can be fatal.
1: Absolutely, yes, that's a wonderful point. Exactly, it's it's a spectrum, right? And you know, risks get higher and consequences get more the farther you are along that spectrum. But yes, so I think you know, both pointing out these risks associated with moderate alcohol use and understanding you know, shifting the population curve a tiny bit has these big overall impacts on cancer and other things, while also acknowledging that you know alcohol use disorders are so common i think it's something like 30% of all americans at some point in their life would have qualified for an alcohol use disorder i mean it many of us right have symptoms of absolutely be moderate alcohol use disorder in our 20s right that's a not uncommon thing at all so there's you know natural recovery people change their drinking patterns and behaviors sort of because their contexts changed right and they're not around people drinking as much but that of course is not the case for many many millions of people as well. And so um, keeping all of these risks in mind, I think is really important across the spectrum.
0: Yeah. And now we just, I mean, it's not a medical term, but we talk about in sort of culture and society, gray area drinking, which Mm -hmm. is sort of on that spectrum, which I think the vast majority of Americans fit into that category where you are not, quote unquote, fine, or an alcoholic, I actually hate that word, But there is a spectrum of alcohol use disorder that most of us fall into that this gray area problematic or unhealthy drinking, although we just talked about that no drinking is actually healthy. And, you know, I think that's good to know. So the one thing I wanted to say is if you are uh, listening to this and you are worried about detoxing, please, please, please go to a medical detox. It can be very, very dangerous. To do it on your own if you're actually physically addicted to it. I'm looking right now at the, the warnings, uh, labels that Ireland is proposing for like the actual bottles and packaging for spirits, including wine or beer. It literally says drinking alcohol causes liver disease, period. There is a direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers, period. I mean, that is true and amazing. Um, when I was drinking, I would hate that. I would have been like, please, this isn't true. This can't be right. Why the hell are you showing this to me? This is making my wine bottle I'm taking a picture of look significantly less sophisticated in my Instagram photo. Like you're killing me here. The one thing I don't see on the label, um, that would also be helpful is just alcohol is addictive, period. Like those three things, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of in the alcohol research world right now. It's not my area of expertise, but many people focus on marketing and communications. And so there are studies going on right now about what is the most effective message to put on a label, because people are hoping, right, that the U.S. will be moving in this direction or specific states. Um, So they are doing great research on exactly this, like what are the most effective messages? And usually it's some sort of rotation of three to five different distinct messages with Yeah, exactly. That sort of span that risk. I think some about, you know, the harms of moderate alcohol consumption, some about the harms of severe alcohol use disorder. Right. Um, And but simple to the point, you can read it, you know, you don't just see your like funny mom juice label or whatever. I have a I had a friend who's an anthropologist who studies sort of studies like, you know, wine mom culture and all the bottles you know at the front of Target with like the funny labels
0: on them. Ooh, and... Will you introduce me to your friend? Please, please, please. <laughs> sure. I would love Absolutely. to learn more about her work. And I think I was a sociology and American history, I think it was a made-up major, American cultural studies major in college. And so I've looked at this a lot through a sociological lens, um, but never through an anti- anthropology (laughs) approach so i would yeah
1: (laughs) i have several anthropologists alcohol anthropologists friends who study alcohol use and we have will take when we sort of see it out in the wild these funny things we'll take pictures and send them to each other of like oh look what target's doing
0: now like oh my gosh oh boy. please please, please <laughs> introduce me That's i mean i love absolutely. target but <laughs> fascinating well it's not just target in trader joe's in september you walk into any trader joe's and they literally have hanging from the ceiling immediately when you walk in Back to school supplies here in a cute little sign with an arrow down in a huge case of wine display, like multiple, multiple cases of wine. And of course, I used to love Trader Joe's because they have like two buck chuck. Like literally you can get a bottle of wine for like 2 dollars $3.99.
1: Well, that shows you how the the different policies are so different. So in Pennsylvania, um, only three years ago did they start being to se- able to sell any alcohol in grocery stores. You could only get them from state-controlled stores. So Trader Joe's here do not sell alcohol. And then, of course, you know, two-buck chuck was $2 in California and $3 elsewhere. Um, we finished this. We did a study over the last five years or so. And a big part of it was we went into every single store that sold alcohol in the East Bay in California. So Oakland, Berkeley, that area. And we talked to people about also, where do you most often buy alcohol? And by far, like 20%, 25% of our sample, which was a random population sample, bought their alcohol most often at Trader Joe's. It was the hot spot. T-
0: <laughs> what was that percent?
1: Oh, it, of our sample, it was like 20% plus. And 10% were in this one in Rockridge, this one Trader Joe's that I used to go to when I lived in Oakland. Um, and it's because of, you know, what we call bundling, so this idea that like, Want to buy alcohol where it's convenient and inexpensive, right? So you're oh, going like to Trader that. Joe's to buy your groceries, and like, oh, there's the you know five dollars six pack of beer. I'll just grab one of those while I'm here. So, um, it's not these like corner liquor stores that get glamorized oh, yeah. as that sort of the you, problem. Like,
0: have to like go into the gas station in a bad neighborhood or whatever. I no, it's actually, the Trader Joe's
1: and the Whole Foods.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I used to go to the grocery store in early sobriety, which is so hard, and honestly before I quit drinking. And I often said, Oh, never mind. let me just buy a bottle of wine, you know, because I don't want to drink more than a bottle. And then, you know, three days later, I would be like, let me get the six pack in the cute little bag for the 10% off. (laughs) And then I would go up to the checker and be like, I'm having a party. I was not having a party. Like it was just so uncomfortable. But I used to go into the grocery store, I would put on my headphones and listen to a sobriety podcast or something to remind me not to buy that shit. I used to sing in my song, I'm totally dating myself, but when I was a kid, there was this song, Poison. There was like a whole dance associated with it. I used to walk by wine displays and be like, that shit is poison. Like I would think to myself. And it's insane that as a mom, going to a grocery store, these are the things, you know, a career woman at a Fortune 500 companies, these are all the things that I personally had to do to not pick up an addictive drug when I was buying food for the week.
1: Right. Well, and this is why being in a state that has a state controlled, um, you know, non-privatized liquor control system, alcohol control board actually makes a huge difference because then Pennsylvania go to the grocery store and you don't see that, right? You have to go to the state liquor store
0: to buy your alcohol.
1: Um, and
0: that makes a big difference. That is one change that could make a huge difference because yeah. um, my husband still drinks beer. And now I actually go into the section a lot because I love non-alcoholic beer. It's like my favorite. I love Athletic Brewing Company. But for a good year, I would not buy my husband beer. I would just be like, I mean, A, I was kind of pissed at him because I still wanted to drink. So I was like, you know what, buy yourself, like if you want it. But I also was like, I don't want to go down that aisle. And, you know, now I'm fine with it, but I'm also seven years alcohol free, probably fine with it over the last, you know, after the first two years. But it's hard. And then also you're confronted with it where you would not expect to. So I go into our drugstore To get my prescriptions and, like, I don't know, makeup, tissues, something. I'm checking out. There is a display at checkout of wine in a can, touting like recyclable, convenient, you know, like, and people are putting cans of wine in their purse, you know, to go to. Washington
1: was one of the last states to privatize, actually. They used to have a state-controlled liquor system until not that long ago. Um, And so, you know, it used to be that most states were run through state because it was great for state income taxes. I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire and people would drive over the border because our alcohol was so much cheaper, but you could only buy it at like two different stores, right? There was one place you had to go 20 minutes away to get your alcohol. It was slightly less expensive, but in balance, it was totally worth it, right? Because it wasn't everywhere. Um, But because of the alcohol industry and their partnerships, right, like they tend to they've been knocking them down one after another. And Pennsylvania was one of the last states that had a fully state run liquor control board. And they still are that way with hard alcohol. Um, But beer and wine are now in grocery stores since I moved here nine years ago. So, you know, everyone's going the wrong direction, not the right direction, unfortunately, because there's tons of evidence that that makes a big difference.
0: But here we are. I mean, it is what it is, right? But it is interesting. And I also read that I don't remember what country it might have been Japan, it might have been somewhere else was actually doing a ad campaign to get people to drink because younger generations were not drinking, and it was impacting their revenue, their tax revenue base. So it was like, take one for the team, buy some alcohol so that we can pay for your schools. I don't know what the campaign was, but I mean, it's amazing. So we are definitely like penny wise and pound foolish in terms of a dollar here for the tax revenue this year versus huge public health risk and cost to mass um, population level issues that will cost the states, the country, a lot of money.
1: Right. If that's a problem, just double the taxes on alcohol, and then the people buying the alcohol will make up the revenue. Right? Like that's the solution.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Because twenty percent of the drinkers drink eighty percent of the alcohol consumption.
1: Right, and if they can't afford quite as much, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, right? So, but you know, taxation is the easy solution
0: <laughs> if it just becomes more special, more of a treat, something you're exactly gonna do x amount of the time versus daily bottle and a half. And I think that's, that would be amazing too, as well as not selling it in grocery stores, drug stores. And as I'm saying that people are probably getting pissed and I get it. I would have been pissed if you raised the taxes on my wine. It didn't sell it at Trader Joe's and at the pharmacy, but eh, just saying, hopefully the world will change. Um, and then more people will have early intervention, right? High blood pressure, oh my gosh. If you stop earlier or harm reduction, right? If you drink less because you are aware of the health implications, if you don't think three glasses of wine every night is innocuous, you will be healthier. You just will. And you'll be happier because you'll have less anxiety and depression and better sleep. And you'll look better because drinking alcohol is horrible for your skin. So if you stop drinking purely for vanity, you will look younger.
1: <laughs> You're very convincing.
0: <laughs> all right, good. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you want to share before we end this?
1: No, I think that we covered everything. Um I was hoping to talk about. So I really appreciate it. Um this was a really fun conversation. Thank you for, you know, letting me talk about all of this. You know, it As I said, it feels like something that I didn't get a chance to do very often. And now with a dry January that's been marketed, right, and people starting to have these conversations, I've been having some more opportunities to just, you know talk basics. Um, and I just, I'm really appreciative because I think it's really important and I enjoy doing it. And yeah, I just hope that more and more people sort of are aware of all the nuances and contours of this conversation, because obviously alcohol is so ubiquitous and such an important part of our culture that I think we all need to be more thoughtful about it.
0: Yeah. And thank you. I know I read your article and I messaged you out of the blue. I searched out your email address, but it was, it was exactly what I wanted to talk about. And just so everyone knows, this isn't just opinion. There are so many scientific articles. There is so much research backing up every single one of these points that we're talking about. And I am going to link to every single one in the show notes of this episode because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And of course, do what you will with it. I am not going to apologize like Huberman lab, even though I adore him. I'm so happy he did. I am not going to apologize for telling you scientific information about your health. But you know, when you know more, <laughs> you can change things if you want to. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Dina. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast.
1: It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves.